Good morning. Uh, today's sermon text is Genesis 22. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the, place, or for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father, and he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. And it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself, I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and, not, and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. Now after these things it was told to Abraham, Behold, Milcah has also borne children to your brother Nahor, Uz, his firstborn, Buzz, his brother, Cumul, the father of Aram, Kezid, Hazo, Pildash, Jidlaf, and Bethuel. Bethuel fathered Rebekah. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. Moreover, his concubine, whose name was Rumah, bore Teba, Gaham, Tehash, and Maacah. Thank you. How about us and Buzz for uh, some kid names? Sounds about right. I don't know if that would work. So I don't know what I did to um, draw the short straw, but whoever did the scheduling gave me Sodom and Gomorrah and then followed up with this. So let's see what we can do. See what happens. I blame Ron, right? Right, I don't, know, I don't know what I did, but I'm so sorry. Yeah, 
one day. That's the way we work. We just punish each other without telling each other what's wrong, right? And Christian love. Yeah, that's what it's called. Cool. Oh, boy. It's a great place to work. No, no. <laughs> it, it actually is. <laughs> uh, good morning. So, so like 11, 11 or so years ago, um, um, I, we had some family come into town from Manitoba. And if, if you know, well, it was my aunt and uncle and some of their, like, my cousins and things like that. And they, they were, um, they, they have trouble with the mountains, right? Because it, it just feels like it's so claustrophobic. Like, they can see for forever from wherever they are. And then they come here and they see the mountain there. And they're like, it's going to fall on me. And it's not so great. Uh, so she's, she really actually doesn't like it. So out of, you know, familial love, we said, let's take her to Whistler, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's go do the zip lines at Whistler and see how that goes, right? So we went up there um, to do these zip lines with some family and uh, you, you kind of do the pay thing and then while you're waiting for the bus to take you up, they have this like mock zip line. It's just like two poles in the ground and a little platform and then you can hook yourself up and do it so you can kind of get used to the feeling or whatever. And it, it, it only lets you get like so far off the ground. It's really not a big deal, right? Like if you actually put your feet down probably halfway through, you could stop yourself, but it's just supposed to get you used to it. So I did that a few times. I thought, oh, this is, this is super easy. Great. So I got on the bus, went up to where we were supposed to go, climbed the big hill, climbed the tree, looked down. Hmm. Oh, I don't feel so good. Cool. Okay. But, you know, I'm from BC and I'm supposed to be used to the mountains, so I'm just, I'm going to do this, right? I can't be shown up by anybody else, right? So I, I, you know, get hooked on, the guy makes sure everything's good, we're good to go, and off I go. It was awesome, okay? It was kind of fun. Did the first station, did the second station, got off at the second station, and we're talking there. And I'm like, guys, are, you, are your arms, like, super tired? Like, and my brother is just like, no, because my brother doesn't care about anything. He's just like, and he's upside down and doing all this. And I just discovered I'm holding on to this rope for like dear life. Like, like sure, I'm all hooked up. Here's, here's, here's the, the, the whatever it's called up there. I forgot the word now. Goodness, right? And I'm just holding on to the rope, right? Like, like, like this, this is going to save me. If something goes wrong, if the contraption above me decides to break loose, this is going to save me. I'm holding on, right? It doesn't matter. There's a thousand feet below me. No, no, no. This rope has got me. Right? Right? No. See, I discovered that I don't believe that the engineer who engineered the piece above me actually knows what he's talking about. Right? That they haven't safety tested that. They didn't check that the bolts were all working, that the wheel was properly working. No, 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 no. And so the way that I show that is I hold on to the rope that's attached to the thing that's supposed to hold me up. Right? Like that, that's, my, that's my way of saying I got, I got this. I can't show my fear, but I'm just going to hold on for dear life. Like this is death grip time. By the end, like I just was like my, my forearms were dead. It was the best forearm workout I ever had probably the only one. <laughs> um, but you, 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 I, I recognize that this is actually how we go through life a lot of times, isn't it? Um, a couple of years ago, I had to um, bring my son, my youngest son, Beckett, to have a surgery. He had to do a, uh, he had a hernia, and he needed to get that fixed. We found it very early, but they couldn't do it until after he was a year old. 
And so, um, you know, we had the appointment date. We, you know, approached that date, go to Children's Hospital with my son, and you sit in the waiting room holding your one-year-old son. And then the nurse comes over, and you get dressed. And what they want is they want one of the parents to go in and calm your child. So I get into the surgical garb, wash my hands, ready to go, take my son, walk through the doors that you're not supposed to walk through. Down, down the hallway, around the corner, into the surgical room. And they're just in the middle of this room that's much bigger than you think was necessary for a tiny little one-year-old sits a bed. And you sit on that bed and you hold him in such a particular way and you blow some bubbles so that he's calm. And then the anesthesiologist puts the anesthetic in and his eyes roll into the back of his head and he is like dead in your arms. And then you're supposed to put him on the table and walk out. You know, in that moment, I discovered what I hold on to a lot. Oh man, my grip was so tight on my kids. And how hard it was to turn from this son that I love and walk out those doors and say, Surgeon, I trust you. God, regardless of what happens in the next hour and a half, I trust you and walk out. You, you know, I, I think that's actually what Abraham went through. See, as a reader, we get this lovely little phrase at the beginning that Moses said, right? After these things, God tested Abraham. We're like, whew, it's a test. It's all going to work out in the end, right? Like, we don't have to worry. Either we've read the story before, and we know what's going to happen. We know what's going on. But Abraham does not. Abraham hears God's voice, where he says, Take your son and go to the land that I will show you. Go to the Mount of Moriah. This is like, there is no question in Abraham's mind that this is God because when God called him out of the land of Ur, he used exactly the same phrase Abraham, go to the land that I will show you. So here Abraham is having a conversation with God and just like in un unbelief. We've waited 25 years for this child. You have provided this child. And now you're saying, what? I'm sorry. What do you want me to do? And in it, we learn what Abraham holds on to tightly and what it is that he'll hold on to loosely. It's an amazing display of faith. And it really shows for us what it looks like to have genuine faith. To be able to walk into any circumstance and trust that God has it. So in it, in Abraham's kind of pinnacle moment of faith and belief in what God's going to do, we learn kind of two things about faith. Well, there's two attributes to belief that need to be there. 
And we also learn a couple of attributes, three attributes of God. So let's first look at the two attributes of faith. First, genuine faith results in obedience. Genuine faith results in obedience. Read again with me verse 1 to 3. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. I don't know about you, but I think I would deliberate. Like I, I hear that message, I hear that command, and I'd be like, I think I need to test the spirits here. Like really, I don't know about this God. I don't trust that you're actually going to do what you say you're going to do. I think that your promises actually go against what you're asking me to do. I'm going to get a second opinion. I'm going to get a third opinion. I'm going to get a fourth opinion. Maybe I'll get an opinion until I find one that says, nah, you shouldn't go. But Abraham does exactly the opposite. He gets up early in the morning. He cuts the wood himself. Can you imagine doing that as a father who's raised this child, chopping the wood that you are going to then sacrifice your son to? I think I'd, I think I'd get that task for somebody else. I think I'm deliberating everything. But Abraham here, in some, in some like spiritually miraculous way, just is like, okay, God wants me to do this. I'm going to get up early. Going to chop the wood, going to get the donkey, let's get going. Might as well not delay. I, I, I don't know how this is going to turn out, but God said, so I'm going to do. We really get the impression that Abraham is unwavering in his faith. He just gets up and does it. And, and, and I, I think we kind of understand this, this correlation between faith and action when we think about any other place in the, in, in the way we live our lives. Like, like when, when I play sports, and you line up at, at a face-off dot, and you got, you got your opponent against you, and he starts chirping, you know, all the fun things that they say to get you off your game, or say, you know, I'm better than you, or... You, you're terrible or whatever in much more colorful language. It doesn't matter. Because all, all you have to tell yourself is prove it. You can, you can chirp all you want, beak off all you want, but until you actually show it, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how good you say you are or if you can do X or Y or if you're going to beat me, good, show it. We, we do this with, with jobs, don't we? 
You hire somebody based on their resume. This is what they say they can do. And then there's a probation period in which you say, okay, show me. This is what you say. Show me you can do it. Right? We, we, we operate in this way. In, in the same way, James, uh, one of the authors of the New Testament, as he's writing to a church, he's kind of wrestling through this idea of what does it look like to have faith in Christ? What does it look like to believe? And how do we determine if that faith is genuine? And he actually looks back at Abraham here in uh, James chapter 2, verse 19, and he says this. You believe that God is one. You do well. Uh, even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from, from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works. And faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. See, James's argument is, is that Abraham could believe all he want, but unless he put the rubber to the road, unless he said, okay, God, you've commanded me to do this, I will do it. I don't understand it, but I will do it. I hear your command and I will obey. It's in that obedience that James can say Abraham's faith was genuine. That Abraham's faith that made him righteous was genuine because of the outworking of the works that happened. It was proved so. See, gen genuine faith results in obedience. What's God asking you to be obedient in? today. But secondly, genuine faith is rooted in the person of God. Genesis 20, 22 verse 5, after they've gone through this three-day journey, they come close to the mountain, and then Abraham said to these young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. That seems a little clever, doesn't it? I mean, hmm, he sounds like he's sidestepping a little bit there. It's not like uh, me and the boy are going to go worship and I'm going to come back to you. Right? He doesn't want the servants to know. But actually, the Hebrew makes it very clear that that verb comes is plural. Shocking, hey? Ah, the Hebrew plural verb. But what that, actu what that actually means is Abraham is saying, my son and I are going to go up to that mountain and we are going to worship that God and then my son and I are coming back. I don't know how, but I know that. J 
Genesis 22, 6 through 8. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and he laid it on Isaac. This means Isaac was 13, 14 years old, old enough to carry the load of wood that would go up the mountain. And he took it in his hand, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they both went up uh, of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. And he said, ah, uh, we have the fire and the wood. But where's the lamb? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. You have to imagine the three days of journeying beside your son, 13, 14 years old, asking questions along the way. What's that, Dad? Oh, I can't wait to tell Mom about that when we get back. Oh, you know, we, we need to do this on the farm, or I've really been struggling. I would really like you to teach me that. I can't wait until I get to do this thing, Dad. The entire time looking at your son, seeing the promises of God, and looking at what's ahead and going, I don't, I don't know how this lines up, because what God has promised is that through this son, through this boy right here, his promises will come true, and yet he's asking me to do something that I don't, like, I just, I cannot square this circle. But here's what I do know. I know that God. I know that God. And so he'll provide. I don't know how, but he will provide. And you, you know, sometimes, sometimes the New Testament is really helpful for us. In, in kind of understanding what biblical characters were thinking about. It's almost like, um, I, don't, I don't know if you ever had that, but in your math book, you'd have like the answers in the back, you know? You'd be like, I don't know what this is. And you just quickly flip to the back. Oh, 32, great, and you put it in, which was super fantastic because you get all the answers right on your homework, but it did terrible for like when you have to do a test. So you're like, I didn't actually learn anything. I just looked into the back of the book, went, that's the answer and moved forward, right? So sometimes the Bible kind of does that with, with the answer key. So if you look kind of back uh, at very close to the end in the book of Hebrews in chapter 11, verse 17 uh, to 19, we get kind of a, a picture of what Abraham is actually thinking here. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promise was in the act of offering up his son of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. You see, that's, that's just the conundrum. Like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sacrifice my son, but this is where the promise is supposed to come from. I don't get it. And he considered that God was able even to raise from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. See, what, what the New Testament author understands is that Abraham's conviction is that I have no idea what the path ahead looks like. I have no idea how God is going to bring to fruition his promise in Isaac. I have no idea why he's asking me to command this or to do this, but I know God. And I know that he can raise him from the dead should he have to. So here's what I'm just going to follow step by step in his footsteps until he does something miraculous that I haven't thought about. See, Abraham's faith was in the person of God, not just his promises. It was in who God was. I guess then the question, though, is 
Who then is this God? It's important. So we're supposed to have genuine faith that works out in action and that is based on the person of God. We better understand who this person of God is. I think we see three here in our text this morning. Uh, first, and most challenging, he is a God who tests. Yes, he is a God who tests. After these things, God tested Abraham. God was not happy with just leaving Abraham in the space that he was. He tested him. It gave, gave him a task to do that was beyond the faith capacity that he already had and pushed his faith further. And this, this, is, this is a theme from the beginning of the Bible right through the end that God tests us. Deuteronomy 13, 1-3, just after the Israelites have come out of Egypt and they've seen the miraculous works of God and what he had done to bring them out to the mountain and then he rested on the top of the mountain and they were fearful of him. They saw his glory and his majesty. Then he writes in Deuteronomy 13, verse 1-3, he says, If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, says, this is what's going to happen. And that sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass. Like it actually happened. He says, this is going to happen on this day at this time, and it actually happened. He verified his spiritual power. He has some insight that regular people don't have. And then he says, let us go after other gods, which you have not known. Let's go to Baal or Asherah or money or sex or a philosophy of any kind. And let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Oh. So here's a guy who does incredible things and who seems to just have the spirit of God in him, who's doing wonderful things, and then says, hey, how about we just bring in this God here? Just alongside Yahweh. It's okay. We have the, temple, uh, the tabernacle over here. We'll just put an Asherah pole over here. And we'll put a Baal pole over there. And we'll make sure that we store our, our, our storehouses full so that we're ready. And, and, and that's good. And God says, guess what? I'm testing you. Where's your loyalty? See, I'm going to bring people like that. Like, why in the world would God do something like that? Why? Why, 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 why is this the mode of operation? I think we have to go back to James. 
kind of is wrestling through what does this look like as he's as he's writing to the church he's he's trying to explain to them what would this look like and and how do we understand these testings and trials that come along and he says in James chapter 1 2 to 4 count it all joy my brothers when you meet trials of various kinds for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete lacking in nothing the testing of your faith produces steadfastness you see this testing god is not happy with just you staying here in this spot where you've always been he loves you in that spot but in his love he says look I'm going to bring things along that are going to mature you, that are going to cause you to work at your faith, that are going to cause you to trust me, that are going to cause you to let go of some of the things that you're holding on to so incredibly tightly and just hold on more to me. I'm going to make sure that you start to learn what it looks like to have genuine faith in me, not in the things around you. I'm going to test you. I'm going to put your faith to the test. Build that muscle so that you grow and you become perfect like Jesus is perfect. My goal is to take you from the mess that you are and the place that I love you in here and I want to make you like Jesus because I wouldn't love you if I didn't. See, if I didn't work in your life in such a way that made you more like my image, more like me, then, then I wouldn't love you. So I bring things that, that build your muscle. And this is the way it works in life, doesn't it? I mean, my, my wife loves to do this to me every time that I attempt to work out for a few weeks. It doesn't happen very often, maybe two times in my life, or at least since we've been married. You know, I'd be like, yeah, I really need to be fit. Let's do some working out. So then I do a few push-ups, right? And then, and then I'm like, oh man, I felt that. And the next day, oh, Ashley's just like, yeah. And she comes up to me, poke, ah, oh, poke. And, and like, this is the old, she just, she loves this, this, like there, it brings her so much joy to like torture me. It's, it's terrible. It doesn't work the other way around. I tried it. it don't do that. Just don't do that. Like I'm so comfortable on the couch. Oh my goodness. But man, it's a reminder that I did something, that my muscles have grown, that I, that, that I actually have been training my body to do something good. And I didn't do that by just sitting there on the couch watching TV. No, I actually had to put some weights on that dumbbell and lift it a few times. I actually have a few beads of sweat come down. And if I want my heart muscle to grow, I better start to run a little bit. If I want it to be healthy, it's the, it's the same thing. God is a testing God. Your faith will atrophy if it is not tested. God is a testing God. You feel like you're in a test? You look at the road ahead and you think that's hard? You think there's no, there's no way 
There's no way that I can do what God is asking me to do. There's no way that I can actually accomplish that. That I can let go of that anxiety. I can give my kids to the Lord. I can walk that path of suffering in front of me. Oh, brothers and sisters, it's for your good. He's building you. He's sending those roots down deep. But it would be a tragedy if he just left us there, testing us constantly. But Abraham knows that God is a God who provides. Verse 13 to 14, And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, The Lord Will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. See, Abraham isn't doing this out of blind faith. He's not doing this just like he doesn't know God or, or anything like that. He's like, look, I know that God has provided for me all along I know that when I came out of the land of, of Ur and came into the land, that he provided for me. He kept me safe. And even when I made stupid mistakes, and I was like, oh, it doesn't look like the land is good here. I went down to Egypt, and then I did the whole wife-sister thing, and that didn't turn out super well. I went in with less than I came out with. God provided. And then when my flocks got too big in God's provision, we stood on top of a hill, and my, my lot stood there and said, oh, this area looks good. And he took that area, and I had to deal with the less, the, the less lush area. God still provided, and I grew. And, th and, then, and then, when 25 years, like my, my wife's, like, there, there's no way she's having a baby. Everything is dead. We're dead in the water. God provided a son. When I thought the answer was Ishmael, God said, no, I will provide a son. And then when I, in my stupidity, go do, like double down on the sister wife thing with Abimelech, he saves me yet again and gives me more. I know my God provides. I know that this path up the mountain seems absolutely impossible, and I don't know how it's going to end, but I do know that my God provides. And so when he does, it's no wonder that he's just like, but God, God provides. The Lord will provide. And you know what's, what's amazing is at the end of this passage, we have that little genealogy there, and sometimes you're just a bit like, why do we have to struggle through these names I just don't understand it. Like, why is it there? Except for verse 23. But Rebecca, Isaac's wife, his future wife. 
You see, even in the moment, while God is asking Abraham to do an impossible thing over here, he is being faithful in providing the future of his promise over here. That when we cannot see what God is doing over here, he is providing for our future over here. That while God is asking Abraham to have utter faith in him and what he's doing, he's saying, no, 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 I'm raising up Isaac's wife so that the promise I've made to Isaac will continue on. You see, we have a God who provides in the past, who provides in the present, and who provides in the future. That right now, in the circumstances that you're going through, the things that you're thinking about, the way that you're working through life, you can look back and you can look back at God's provision, what he has done in your life, how he has brought you through the things that seemed impossible. And you can be certain that your future is certain because God provides. It's not because of you. It's not because of Abraham. It's not because of Isaac. It's because of God's provision. You see, our God is a providing God. Do you believe that? Do you look forward in hope to what God will do in the path ahead? Do you spend time looking back at the path that you've come through and seen how God has provided? Do you remind yourself in the present? I don't know what the path ahead looks like, but God will provide. He is a providing God. But finally, and probably most importantly, actually, not even probably, just most importantly, he is a God who saves. I, I, I hope you see it. Like this, this, this entire passage from verse one down till the end is dr like dripping with the like the illusion of Jesus. Like the whole thing is just saturated in Jesus Christ. It is God's foreshadowing of what will come in his kingdom. From the very beginning, when God says to Abraham, take your son, your only son whom you love. And then the gospel writer John says, for God so loved the world that he sent his only son as whosoever should believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And when Jesus is baptized, the heavens open and you hear God saying, this is my son whom I love. His only son. And then, and then you get this amazing thing that a lot, like it's just really hard to see is that Moriah is, is only mentioned two times in the Bible. Here in 2 Chronicles 3 verse 1. 
God calls Abraham to take a three-day journey to the Mount of Moriah, and he goes onto the top of this mount, and this is the mount that King Solomon builds the temple on. That years later, that this picture of substitutionary sacrifice, that God provides a lamb for Isaac, now is the place where the temple is built and the people come to recognize that God lives among them and that they can bring a lamb as a substitute for their sin and then they can approach God. They can be called God's people. And then Jesus comes and looks at the temple and he says, you will destroy this temple, but in three days, I will raise it up. Talking about himself. Saying, I am that temple. And a stone's throw away from there, Jesus carried the wood of the cross up the hill. Sound familiar? Except he laid on that altar. And because of that, the promises of God in, in Abraham, which is that Abraham would be a blessing to all the nations, comes to fruition in that it's not just Israel, it's not just those who can directly claim some sort of genealogy to Abraham, but it is for all, Jew and Gentile alike. It doesn't matter what your genealogy is. No, 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 it's a matter where your faith is. And that because of the work of Christ on the cross, that now we can approach God without the temple, without sacrifice, because he put his son willingly on that altar and Christ willingly laid down on that altar. And so that act of faith, that, that foreshadowing shows us then what it is to be a blessing to the nations. And that God's picture in Abraham is not to just a few people, but has expanded into an immeasurable blessing to the world. You know, when, when, when Paul is, is, is wrestling through what this looks like, and he's trying to explain it, he's writing in the, in the book of Romans, He's, he's trying to explain this reality to, to, the, to the Roman church. So he starts with sin and the reality of sin and how we know God and yet we still do things that we ought not to do and it kind of just shows our black heart. And it doesn't matter if you were a Jew and you grew up under the law or if you grew up a Gentile because we all just have a rebellious heart against God. And then he goes and he shows how it is that Christ came to pay for that sin and how then after paying for that sin, um, we have this relationship with God and it kind of culminates in Romans chapter 8, verse 31 and 32 and where he says this, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will it he not also with him graciously give us all things? If God wouldn't even spare his son, if he'd walk away from the operating table, say, I, I will sacrifice him so I can save you. Why wouldn't he give you everything that you need? Why wouldn't he provide what you need? 
serve a God who saves us. And in that, we can joyfully obey no matter how hard the circumstances because we know that God will provide. We know that God will save. So my question is, what is keeping you up at night? Are you holding that rope so tightly and forgetting to hold what actually is holding you up? It is so easy to hold on to our children. It is so easy to hold on to the wealth that we have. It's so easy to hold on to our careers or the things that we have, and then we neglect God. But it is the equivalent to holding the rope. Oh, my prayer for you is that you would understand what Paul says in 2 Timothy 1 through 12 or 112 but i am not ashamed for i know whom i have believed and i am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me do you believe that Oh God, thank you so much that you do not abandon us to ourselves, but that you are a God of provision, you are a God of saving, that you are a God who strengthens us by testing us. Oh Father, thank you for the truth of Jesus. Thank you that you did not leave us where we were at and that you have given us pictures of what it looks like to leave what we love and to trust you. Oh God, would we see that you are good and right and holy and beautiful and would we joyfully submit our lives to you in response to what you've done for us? God, would you help us open our hand on those things that cause us worry and angst and sleepless nights? Oh God, would you help us cling to you ever, ever more, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.